Hello and welcome to another week of Trashy Divorces. My name is Stacy. I'm Alicia. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Marital Decidedly Not Bliss. <laughs> this week, under the theme of expressing oneself, we're using the Charles Wright and the Watts 103rd Street Rhythm Band version of Express Yourself, but NWA does a theme with this one too, and the line that connects it here in this episode. This is what makes me think about our two profiles today. It's not what you look like when you're doing what you're doing. It's what you're doing when you do it, what you look like you're doing. It's all about perceptions. If you know the song, it's going to make sense. It's not about what you're doing. What does it look like you're doing? Fun in our story today. I did not realize how much thought you had put into our theme song this week. 100% every week. It's what I live for. It's my subversive (laughs) little musical soundtrack to Trashy Divorces. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. This week in our show-stopping episode, you're bringing us one of our Super Bowl performers. Yes, the Superb Owl is happening, and uh, (laughs) Dr. Dre will be part of the halftime show, I'm told. We did just look up who is actually playing in the game because we are deeply invested in sportsing. Go teams! Go teams! (laughs) Who do you have this week? I'm bringing you the trashy divorces of Faye Dunaway, who's really team Faye Dunaway. That's, That's the team she's on. Pretty good, interesting stories. Not very high in numbers, but super high in trash. Yes, super high in trash and bad behavior towards others. It's, there's a lot. There's a lot there. Before we start with our episode this week, let's take out the magic mirror. Sure. And give some huge love and thanks to the newest Patreon supporters who joined us over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Who joined us this week? Thank you so much for joining us. The Neon Lady, Mary B, Jessica F, Susan A, Haley K, Simone, Jennifer H, Bree C, Debbie S, Emmy. We have two new super supporters as well, Shannon H and Rebecca P. Thanks, y'all. We've got two special shout outs to give while the magic mirror's out as well. Definitely. Happy, happy birthday, Jesse. Hope you were having a great weekend in Atlanta this weekend. And Lauren, too. Hope y'all both enjoyed your festive Atlanta weekends. We're sorry we could not. We're having fantastic weather, though. Like, hard to beat. Hard to beat. Great weekend for it. Alicia, what should we do now? We should do what we look like we're doing. Oh, my God. Which is go, go, go. So, Stacy, finally, this one has blessedly wrapped up, and we can talk about it now. Yes, we watched this for a good long while. Uh, This all happened during the run of the show. Today, we're going to talk about one of the more twisty-turny celebrity divorces that has played out recently. Has a little bit of everything. There are affairs, prenup battles, sudden health crises, secret babies, burglary rings, And all through it, just mind-blowingly large sums of money driving a grueling, grinding conflict that likely would have been much simpler for a long-married couple of normal person means. But happily for our show, unbelievably rich celebrities walk among us. You're not kidding. Welcome to the Trashy Divorces (laughs) podcast, Dr. Dre. And they are often terrible at relationships, it turns out. So we're going to talk about Dr. Dre, a pioneer of rap and hip-hop a businessman, a record producer, whose wife of 24 years, Nicole Young, filed for divorce from him in California in June of 2020. It kicked off an 18-month-long ordeal that he is unlikely to get over anytime soon. 
The only bright spot that I can see is that their kids are both adults, because I assume a custody support portion of this would have been very ugly as well. Dr. Dre was born Andre Ramel Young on February 18th, 1965. He grew up in and around Compton, California, quite famously. Happy birthday, Dre. Ah, yeah. yeah. His parents uh, are also both singers and performers. They were both in separate acts, uh, but they split up when he was very young. His grandmother played a big role in raising him. There was unfortunately violence in his childhood home as well, from which he would learn some wrong lessons that would impact, well, the women in his life, oh, no. life in the future. Yikes. It sounds like he was also poorly served by California's public schools in the 70s, but the family moved a lot too. So really, it just sounds like there was built-in instability in his life. His mother remarried and divorced and remarried again. So Dre found himself the eldest sibling to a small army of half and step siblings. Again, just a lot of instability. In high school, he got very into drafting, technical drawing. Oh, really? So much so that he applied to an apprenticeship program with Northrop Aviation. Dr. Dre, aeronautical engineer. Fly me to the moon. You're kidding. As a culture, we should probably be glad that his grades were not quite up to snuff and he was not approved for the apprenticeship. He chose a different direction. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Northrop chose a different direction. Probably disappointing for him at the time, but I think it's safe to say it's worked out all right. Anyway... With his sole academic interest seemingly out of reach, he started frequenting clubs in the area, watching DJs spin and rappers rap. Maybe DJs scratched back then? I'm not sure about the lingo. Anyway, one of these clubs, called Eves After Dark, became his home away from home of sorts, and for Christmas of 1984, he was gifted a mixer and began to experiment with his own beats. And it begins. By Dre. Soon enough, he was the hands at the turntables at Eve's After Dark, where there was just like this core of musical talents who would define West Coast hip-hop in the 80s, and they were all finding common cause. Adopting the stage persona of Dr. Dre, the master of mixology, which was a shout-out to basketball great Julius Dr. J. Irving. Right. He joined a group called the World Class Reckon Crew, which I think was kind of a vehicle of the owner of Eve's After Dark, another DJ. They leaned into flashy suits because, like, Prince and Michael Jackson in the 80s kind of kind of look that sort of flamboyant glory. This was ultimately not a vibe that Dre was into. <laughs> <laughs> in a weird stroke of luck, if you want to call it that, Dr. Dre was arrested in 1986 because he had a bunch of parking tickets and he had missed court dates. He only owed 166 bucks, but it was enough for LAPD to print out a warrant. Um so he calls the club owner from the World Class Wrecking Crew, and apparently this was not the first time this had happened, and the club owner's like, nah, man, you're on your own. <sighs> Work it out. So he calls his friend Eric Wright, better known as Easy e Sure. Who agreed to help on the condition. Oh, no. The Dr. Dre produced records for the label he had just founded, Ruthless Records. Something for me, I'll do something for you. Yeah, this worked out very well. Thus was born... NWA, one of the most consequential and controversial acts of the modern era. Eazy-E and Dre recruited Ice Cube, DJ Yella, MC Ren, there were others. And together they were to revolutionize American music and pioneer what came to be known as gangster rap, which they themselves described as reality rap, but I think the marketers in the music world preferred the more in-your-face moniker. Their debut album launched with its eponymous single Straight Outta Compton, 
with lyrics heavy on threat, guns, and domination, and these untouchable, hyper-masculinized personas that could be stopped by neither punks nor police. I think all of these guys were under 25 when this dropped, and they were pretty clearly having the time of their lives. Fuck the Police, their second song, was not just a rallying cry. It was also a bit of marketing genius. We were much earlier in the culture war and lacked the internet, of course, but socially conservative groups like Focus on the Family zeroed in on this dangerous group of young black men glorifying violence and disorder, lawlessness. Many radio stations banned NWA entirely. The FBI sent a letter to their record label decrying the anti-cop tone of the song. This is on view at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. Oh, my. (laughs) And police departments around the country very publicly declined to provide security for NWA shows, which affected their touring schedule. But the coverage of all of this more than made up for the lack of airplay in terms of generating interest and album sales. Yeah, restrict something. See what happens. Right. America's youth swooned at the new sound of rebellion and straight out of Compton eventually went double platinum. Personally, I can clearly recall my father having a very awkward conversation with me. I was soon to discover the sweet, sweet sounds of the Indigo Girls and such about steering clear of this dangerous new gangster rap. Very, very dangerous. <laughs> Poor like, parents. Like in the I 80s. was going to get were sucked really into. Really upset. They were really upset. Okay, let's pause to note that the from the street perspective being offered here was not performance art. Dre became a father for the first time when he was 16. The baby was raised by his girlfriend, who was 15, uh, when the kid was born. It would be 20 years before he would meet his dad, Dr. Dre, for the first time. Wow. These were turbulent years for Dre and left him with a lot to apologize for. In 1983, Dre had the first of three children with his next girlfriend, or another girlfriend, I'm not sure. Unfortunately, Ben Westhoff, author of the 2016 book Original Gangsters, uncovered some kind of awful stuff about Dre. On the Murder Master Music Show, that's a mouthful, Westhoff said, quote, the movie Straight Outta Compton doesn't have anything about Dr. Dre's abuse of women. This was like a 2016 film, Mm -hmm. I believe. Westhoff continues, there are four women who have accused Dr. Dre of beating them up. I discovered one for my book who has never been talked about before. Her name is Lisa Johnson, and she says he beat her a bunch of times in the 80s when they were together, including while she was pregnant, and I was able to find court documents to back this up. I also talked to an eyewitness to one of the beatings who was her aunt. Yikes. So he kind of went swimming through microfiche machines, rolls, records, whatever. Stuff that, I don't know, has not been digitized yet to be searchable on Google. Anyway, this is why this had not turned up before. So he found court records showing that Dre was not paying child support and that he was being physically abusive. Like it was a substantiated enough account that he felt he could publish. Johnson received a restraining order back in the eighties, although Dre was never criminally charged for assaulting his intimate partner. Other girlfriends had similar stories. Singer Michelet, a recording artist in her own right and a frequent vocal contributor to Dre's projects with whom he was involved for six years has been pretty open in recent years about the violence that she was subjected to during their time together. According to her, Dre broke her nose, left her with cracked ribs, and gave her five black eyes. That's she, terrible. Yeah, she gave an interview to the Huffington Post uh, around also 2016, I think. When you're living in it, you can't see it, but I couldn't believe that I was really living like that. Never did I wake up and ask Dre, why did you hit me? He also fired a gun at her once, missing her by inches. 
Weirdly, she developed a fairly disruptive pills and alcohol system of coping, a situation that Death Row Records CEO Suge Knight, her future kind of husband, ultimately helped her to get clean from. This is a spider web. Spider web, yeah. Well, and Suge Knight was Dre's bodyguard for a long time right. as well. So, yeah, it's... it's spider webby. Mm, I will not pretend to understand the uh, like the web of relationships of all of these people. Because um, Dre would also produce Michelet's album after they broke, like, Spiderwebs, Entanglement. Anyway, Suge Knight and Michelet married. They were together for about six years. And when they split up, she began divorce proceedings only to learn that the marriage was invalid <gasps> because he was still married to the person that she thought was his ex-wife. No. Perhaps he thought so, too. I don't know. Can you imagine being married to somebody for six years and you're not married to them? No. <laughs> it's it's weird. Okay. Reports of Dre's violence toward women only really began to circulate in the mid-2010s. Ben Westhoff said that Dre's lawyers threatened to sue him if he published his findings, which he did anyway. And Michelet was also threatened before her 2015 biopic Surviving Compton came out. But it did force Dre to publicly address the matter, which he did in a sort of surprisingly fulsome way, given like the reactions many men have had to kind of Me Too type stuff of like, it, I don't know, just not accepting any responsibility. So to Rolling Stone, he said, I made some fucking horrible mistakes in my life. I was young, fucking stupid. I would say all the allegations aren't true. Some of them are. Those are some of the things I would like to take back. It was really fucked up, but I paid for those mistakes, and there's no way in hell that I will ever make another mistake like that again. Okay, well, that's a... You're correct. Sure. Very, very good accounting. There, There's more. No, no. <laughs> um, in a separate interview with the New York Times, Dre added, 25 years ago, I was a young man drinking too much and in over my head with no real structure in my life. However, none of that is an excuse for what I did. I've been married for 19 years, and every day I'm working to be a better man for my family, seeking guidance along the way. I'm doing everything I can, so I never resemble that man again. I apologize to the women I've hurt. I deeply regret what I did and know that it has forever impacted all of our lives. Congrats. End of story. Well done, Stacey. That's the <laughs> trashy divorce we're done? No. There was a 1991 incident where Dre assaulted a TV host after she interviewed Ice Cube and he mocked NWA. Oh, Again, no. all the rivalries that were happening. Anyway, I'm not sure how this ended up being the TV host's fault that Ice Cube was talking shit about your, like, whatever. This resulted in two years of probation, 240 hours of community service, a $2,500 fine, and a $22.7 million civil lawsuit wow. that was settled out of court. Dre's comment on the incident at the time... People talk all this shit, but you know, somebody fucks with me, I'm going to fuck with them. I just did it, you know? Ain't nothing you can do now by talking about it. Besides, it ain't no big thing. I just threw her through a door. Uh, that's a big thing. That's a big thing. You don't throw people through doors. You do not throw people through doors. In a 2017 HBO documentary, thank God, Dre was a lot more introspective about it, saying, this was a very low point in my life. I've done a lot of stupid shit in my life. A lot of things I wish I could go and take back. I've experienced abuse. I've watched my mother get abused. So there's absolutely no excuse for it. No woman should ever be treated that way. Any man that puts his hands on a female is a fucking idiot. He's out of his fucking mind, and I was out of my fucking mind at the time. I fucked up. I paid for it. I'm sorry for it, and I apologize for it. I have this dark cloud that follows me, and it's going to be attached to me forever. It's a major blemish on who I am as a man. 
which again, Folsom, that's yeah, blemish on who I am is a true and also like, accurate statement. Well said. Okay, so not great behavior. Granted. It's also worth noting that Michelet left him when she learned he was engaged to the woman who would become his wife of the next 24 years. No. And the counterparty in the divorce we're covering this week. Nicole Plotzker is a lawyer who had previously been married to basketball player Sedale Threet. It was during her husband's tenure with the LA Lakers that she met Dre, which in 1995 led to her first divorce. Oh, wow. She was 25. Dre was 30. They married in 1996 and two kids followed, one in 97, another in 01. She also has a child from her first marriage and in the 2020 and 2021 divorce filings. They often reference our three children. So I think she had primary custody of of her, her first marriage. To catch us up on Dre's career, he left NWA in 1991, signed on with Suge Knight's newly formed Death Row Records, released a landmark debut solo record, The Chronic, in 1992. Aside from being a triple platinum smash hit that created the template for what hip-hop would sound like for years, The Chronic also introduced the world to Snoop Dogg, who we have covered before, and who has become his own eminently affable cultural force. Dre produced a number of records while at Death Row as well, including Snoop's debut, and there was a collaboration with Tupac. There was... Anyway, he left the label in 96 to found Aftermath Entertainment. This led to producing or collaborating with Nas, LL Cool J, and Jay-Z, as well as signing an unknown white rapper from Detroit called Eminem. The Slim Shady LP in 99 is credited with reviving Aftermath's then-unsteady fortunes. In the 2000s, Dre produced some of 50 Cent's debut. In 08, he released a line of headphones, Beats by Dr. Dre. I honestly mostly know about these because for several years, all the websites I own were constantly hit by comment spam for Beats by Dre. I don't know what that was about. He struck a deal with Hewlett Packard to bundle Beats by Dre headphones with an exclusive laptop line. And in 2014, Apple made Dre the richest man in hip hop when it purchased Beats by Dre for $3 billion. Yeah, that's a lot of beats. (laughs) (laughs) In interviews, he's quite explicit about keeping his family separate from and out of the game. So Nicole hasn't been an especially public person. There have been rumors over the years about affairs and such, but the Wikipedia page for her first husband notes that he's believed to be the father of 14 children. So infidelity is probably something she's a bit familiar with. 14? Maybe a little willing to look the other way on. Whoa. Dre, for his part, threatened to sue over some of these allegations and has denied them strenuously. We will have more on that in a few moments. So it was that in June of 2020, Nicole filed for divorce in California. Initial reports were that there was no prenup, but in fact there was, and Dre's lawyers insisted that it govern the division of property. Not so fast, Nicole's legal team fired back. That old thing? In a filing that August, Nicole is quoted as saying, I was extremely reluctant, resistant, and afraid to sign the agreement and felt backed into a corner. Given the extraordinary pressure and intimidation by Andre, I was left with no option but to hire a lawyer, of course, with the help of Andre's team of professionals, and unwillingly signed the agreement very shortly before our marriage. Oh. In fact, she continued, two years in, Dre tore the thing up, so it's not even a thing anymore. (sighs) Quote, Andre acknowledged to me that he felt ashamed he had pressured me into signing a premarital agreement, and he tore up multiple copies of the agreement in front of me. 
Since the day he tore up the agreements, we both understood that there was no premarital agreement and that it was null and void. Community property, baby. Let's play. Dre would later threaten to have all of their wedding guests from 1996 take the stand to answer questions about how coerced and afraid she seemed on the day of the wedding. No. So that was fun. We did learn that they married in Hawaii because of that and that there were only 15 or 20 people invited. Well, that shouldn't be a tough day in depot or anything. (laughs) In a September request for $2 million a month in spousal support and $5 million in legal fees, We learned that, according to Nicole anyway, Dre had kicked her out of their $40 million Brentwood mansion that they had purchased from Tom Brady on April 1st in a drunken rage in the middle of the night, consigning her, oh, woe is me, to their Malibu beach house, which he then threatened to sell. She claimed that he had blocked her Amex charges and that her lifestyle was being seriously impacted by lack of access to their five L.A. homes, maybe four since she was at the Malibu house, Access to private jets and a yacht, their fleet of luxury vehicles, and their household staff, including a private chef, a dozen security guards, and half a dozen housekeepers. Moreover, she claimed that Dre dispatched his brother-in-law to come to the Malibu house to, quote, pick up his Glock. Nobody? She did not turn it over. And his... (laughs) Oh! And his lawyers complained that she was also withholding his golf clubs and a motorcycle. I love the idea of Dr. Dre on a golf course. Anyway, Nicole then sued him over a variety of trademarks that she says, under California law, they both own, they jointly own, but which he had secretly transferred into a holding company that he controls. This is actually not a small thing given licensing and branding and all, you know, once you got the trademark. So I went deep diving into the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office where you register trademarks. It's a searchable database and it does, in fact, look like Dre had transferred some trademarks to a company that was registered with the state of California in April of 2020. April 2020, two months before she files. Right. But after they've had this fight. So anyway, um, yeah, you can just have a lawyer slap together a little holding company. Anyway, it's what you look like you're doing when you do it, man. All of this was plenty twisty and turny already. And then we got to January 2021, where Dre was suddenly hospitalized at Cedar sinai after suffering a brain aneurysm. Oh my God. Even more bizarrely, a burglary ring, perhaps having seen news that Dre was in the hospital, attempted to break into his house. You are not kidding. There's a dark cloud over this man. Oh yeah. Pe- oh my God. Police arrested four people. Like, keep in mind, there's a security staff, even if he's at... Anyway. Nicole did visit him in the hospital. Dre came through the aneurysm thing just fine, was released from the hospital in mid-January, which is also when Nicole formally joined the list of women accusing Dre of violence. In a court filing, she recounted two instances where he held a gun to her head. Weird she didn't give him that Glock back, huh? In a court filing, she recounted two instances where he held a gun to her head back in 2000 and 2001, being punched in the head and face in 1999 and 2000 and that in 2016, he kicked down a door in a fit of rage while she hid. Dre denied these claims. Nicole also won in court on the matter of whether three women alleged to be Dre's mistresses, including one he apparently has a child with, could be deposed to determine if Dre had lavished them with gifts from marital funds. Oh, God. I think the judge fined all of them as well for stonewalling, but anyway... So it really feels like the tide was turning against Dr. Dre in these proceedings. 
In April, Nicole's lawyers persuaded the judge that Dre's lawyer, powerhouse celebrity divorce attorney Laura Wasser, as well as his longstanding lawyer Howard King, had to drop off the case because King had represented Nicole as well during the marriage, so conflict of interest. Like, they booted his legal team. It's really remarkable. From here, the case just seemed to grind against him for months, with much more money ordered forked over, 300000 a month in spousal support here, a million in legal fees there. There was a fairly notorious incident last October where Dre was served with papers related to the case at his grandmother's funeral. That's cold. Yes. With the sides differing on whether the process server approached him as he stood beside his grandmother's casket at the gravesite, or instead approached him in the parking lot. But either way, Dre was, I think, rightly furious. Furious, yeah. Refused to take the papers, so they were just dropped next to him. Again, either beside a casket or in a parking lot. It's a whole lot of imagery, the story's telling. Yeah, the whole sorry ordeal finally wrapped up in December, when Dre agreed to pay Nicole $100 million in two $50 million installments, as well as let her hang on to a Rolls Royce, a Cadillac Escalade, a motorcycle, that thing just keeps coming up, and a Range Rover, as well as personal items like clothing, jewelry, bags, and furs, which are estimated to be worth millions of dollars. Dre, meanwhile, keeps their properties, rights to his music, and all of his stock options. I assume the trademark issue was addressed in the rights to his music clause, and hey, a $100 million payday goes a long way to not worrying about licensing fees, I guess. So there we have it, the twisty life and divorce ride of Dr. Dre, baby daddy, who has made some really terrible choices in his life for sure, but is also one of the pillars of today's musical culture. For the whole world, really. I mean... Talented guy. Significant guy. I'm going to give him 10 million trash cans. (laughs) Okay. Which is the amount of money that he donated in 2017 for the construction of a performing arts center, including a 1,200-seat theater at Compton High School. Fantastic. Which is an eminently not trashy way to give a little something back. Good for you, Dre. So there's there's Dre. A a mixed legacy. (laughs) For You're not sure, kidding. No. Stacy, what a story. <sighs> hey, congrats, guys, on wrapping that up. I did see, I think, an Instagram post of Dre sitting with a big like balloon banner behind him that said Divorce Day F. <laughs> so Yeah, that one took a long it did. time it to did. work through the system. We've been watching. We know many of our listeners were also watching. Well done, Stacy. We're gonna take a quick break, hear yeah. from our sponsors, and come back on the flip with something a little different. <laughs> See you on the flip, y'all. Hey, Trash Pandas. When you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. 
When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. If you have been thinking about your financial situation, if you've been brewing questions you would like to ask a financial professional, if you would like some guidance on addressing debt, investing, or other general financial organization, then in the immortal lyrics of Amy Ray, I said it's time. Don't assume anything, just go, go, go. go. To theoaktreegroup.net. There you will find the contact information for three holistic financial planners that have been working together for over 17 years. Kelly, Eileen, and Ellen will tailor a financial strategy for your unique goals and circumstances. You can also give them a call at 770-319-1700 to schedule your free one-hour consultation. They would never use your years to psych you out. Again, the phone number is 770-319-1700, and the website is www.theoaktreegroup.net. Go, go, go! Alicia, you've got a little bit different of a story this week? I do. So, last week on Spiderwebs on Patreon, I did a follow-up story on the friendship of Jane Fonda and Brooke Hayward and talked about Jane Fonda's infamous 1965 Malibu Beach Party. And one of the guests at that party where the birds played was Warren Beatty, who was deciding at that moment who he should cast as Bonnie Parker in a little film he was about to be making called Bonnie and Clyde. Mm. At that same infamous 1965 Malibu Independence Day beach party were Warren Beatty's three top contenders, Natalie Wood, Tuesday Weld, or the hostess herself, Jane Fonda. The role of Bonnie Parker went to none of those. It went to Faye Dunaway. Okay. Who is the focus of my Trashy Divorces profile today. Okay. It was a spider web to get us there. But yes, it was. This is what connected the thought. So relatively low on Trashy Divorces, but super high in the Trashy Count numbers. Faye hmm. Dunaway, two marriages, two divorces, a lot of lovers. Faye Dunaway has a wonderful trashy story of a woman who has very much created her own destiny and been played into by others. Let's get into it. Faye is a Capricorn girl, born January 14th, 1941. So I want you to just think about Capricorns are the like one of the most determined signs. They're the, we make a list and we get it done and there is no stopping Faye Dunaway. She grows up as an army brat. The family moves around a lot. Faye is the daughter of an army sergeant and a mom that is devout about exactly two things in her life. Number one, being a hardcore Methodist. Number two, the success of her two children in the world at large. There's a lot of imago at play here. Faye is going to fall in love with the movies in her dirt road town of Bascom, Florida. Okay. The first movie that... Faye sees that she knows this is what I want to do, stars Jean Tierney, who we've talked about a lot, who at this time is famously married to Oleg Cassini, who we talked about in Love Letters too. This whole world's a spiderweb. Anyway, Faye sees Jean Tierney on screen and whoa, the world begins to look different for Faye. She begins playing in her backyard in small roles. <laughs> and then she'll head to community theater by the time she's 13, 14. Eventually, mom tires of moving from army base to army base, and mom and dad separate. Hmm. Mom, Faye, brother, move back to Florida to her uncle's peanut farm. 
Now why, why not? Well, it's a place to go. <laughs> and here's kind of the scrub. Here you have Faye, who is beautiful, straight A student, smart as a whip. She can't give her number to boys or friends because she doesn't have a phone. So it is this complicated, yeah. like you can see the opportunities she could have had. But again, a lot of Imago at play. Faye is going to make an, uh, Faye is going to make her escape out of Bascom, <laughs> Florida and the peanut farm yeah. to the University of Florida. She gets the lead in Medea. And she gets into college and she understands, Faye does, that there's something that she's looking to do that her peers are not going for. She wants more than the University of Florida. So it is off to Boston University, hmm. Faye goes, where she will study with Lloyd Richards, who is the dude that will send Faye to Alia Kazan, who is working on the establishment of the repertory company at the Lincoln Center. Wow. Yeah. Two years later, Faye Dunaway is starring on Broadway in A Man for All Seasons. Wow. Exactly. In 1965, she is going to play this Irish woman who's dominated by her lower class husband in Hogan's Goat. And the author, William Alfred, said that she completely abandoned herself to the part. Hmm. And this is not the first time abandonment. It won't be the last time abandonment happens either. This same year... Warren Beatty, looking for his Bonnie Parker. I forgot to mention back in New York City before Faye comes out to California, one of her first boyfriends in New York City is Lenny Bruce. Oh, okay. At the time that Bonnie Parker is being cast, Faye is dating Jerry Schatzberg, who is a super famous photographer who owns a disco in Manhattan called Ondine. Okay. And Arthur Penn, the producer of Bonnie and Clyde, knows that Faye is the one. And he's like, please come out and meet Warren. Warren's like, I don't want any part of this. Faye does come out. She is cast, but she's cast with some conditions. Faye Dunaway will wear weights on her arms, waist, and ankles to lose 20 pounds within like two weeks in order to star in Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, my God. Her fashion look becomes so iconic I would like to tell you about the world's beret production that goes from 1500 a week to 20000 a week after the success of Bonnie and Clyde. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Next up in Faye's dating life is Marcello Mastriani, who be a famous director. He becomes infatuated with Faye Dunaway, who at this point does not want to settle down. So she's going to go back to Jerry. But then she'll leave Jerry on the weekends and fly back to Europe to be with Marcello. And soon enough, there's a new lover that's not either one of them. This and is a weird way to be bi-coastal. Yeah. And Marcello makes this emergency trip to win Faye back. And when he cannot, he'll throw a temper tantrum in the hotel lobby. Hmm. Okay. All of these single days will come to an end, though, when in September 1972 in San Francisco, Faye Dunaway will meet her husband number one. Peter Wolf, the lead vocalist for the Jay Giles Band. Okay. Let's get Peter to the Dunaway Depot. Peter Wolf was born in the Bronx. He attends the High School of Music and Art, which is in West Harlem, which is near the Apollo. So all Peter is doing is watching a lot of amazing talent. He's going to get a scholarship. Peter Wolf will go to Boston to study painting, hmm. where his roommate is David Lynch. Weird. Okay. 1964, the Beatles have unplugged. 
Okay. So just like every other 20-something-year-old kid, what are we going to do? Hey, let's start a band. And they do. They're called the Hallucinations, <laughs> and they perform the Velvet Underground and Muddy Waters and Van Morrison. They're kind of a big deal. Peter Wolf is going to become Boston's first all-night DJ oh, wow. on WCBN. He'll meet Jay Giles in 1967, and the rest is kind of musical history. So here it is in 1972 that Peter and Faye meet in his hotel room before the show, and Faye, on the rebound from Marcello, feels an instant connection, and so does Peter. And it's the love affair that rocks the world. Hmm. Like, it's typical for us now to see actresses and rock stars together. But these two in 1972 were the scene. Interesting. Mm -hmm. This couple, Faye and Peter, in love and all that jazz, they date for two years. They decide in 1974 on August 6th to get engaged. They will marry the very next day on August 7th. So short engagement then. Short engagement. Well, I want to remind you. That on August 9th, two days after that, Nixon will resign. Hmm. So it is a world gone mad in August of 1974. Just a few short months later, Faye is also about to pick up her Oscar nomination for Chinatown. Now, during the 1970 to 1978 timeline, Peter Wolf within the Jake Isles band released 10 albums. There's lots of touring. Faye's in Chinatown. Like, she's always working. So there's some struggles mm -hmm. with the with the couple. Yeah. Faye Dunaway in her memoir, Looking for Gatsby, will write, We were there for each other without an effort. We were like two warriors standing shoulder to shoulder. That's how we used to think of ourselves. There was no ego clash between us, though we were always ambitious. If he needed something, I would help him with it. And if I needed something, he would help me with it. With Peter, I never had to worry if he loved me. He simply did. That's mm. nice. Yeah, it is. Eventually, though, she will continue writing in her memoir. She'll write about the end of it, saying, Time, life, and the world kept wearing away at our relationship. A story as old as time. Well, that may be true. But partially responsible may also be the affair that <laughs> Faye Dunaway began when you got a very legendary picture taken hmm. the morning after the Oscars by your soon-to-be second husband, oh. uh -huh. <laughs> Terry O'Neill. Hold on to that. Needless to say, Faye Dunaway and Peter Wolf split in 1978. The divorce is finalized in 1979. Faye will marry again. Peter Wolf will not. Hmm. Mm -hmm. The two have remained friendly, though, ever since. They appear to still be very amicable and happy with each other, which is great. Sure. So I want to take it on back to uh, 1973, 1974, and shed a little light on the absolute shit show that Chinatown was to make. It's worth a mention here of Roman Polanski, who is trashy in the trashiest way. There are a lot of problems on the set of Chinatown that are trashy enough to mention here because this is where Faye Dunaway gets the reputation that she is difficult to work with, which to me from this situation feels like a lot of victim blaming. Let me shake some of this down. Faye Dunaway will ask Roman Polanski to help her figure out her character and Roman Polanski helpfully responds, Say the fucking words. Your salary is your motivation. Whoa. 
There's another day on the set where one of Faye's hair, just one hair is out of place and they can't get it to set. And with the lighting and such, all you're ever going to see is that one hair out of place. So the hairdresser is called in to no avail and they cannot get this damn hair just to stay down. So Roman Polanski marches over to Faye Dunaway's head and plucks the hair out. That is a solution. Faye is unpleased. Really? Faye storms off the set. And at this point, there are a number of meetings. This is according to Bob Evans. The two were brought in to have a little meeting, have a little confab to talk about it. A little HR action happening. Roman Polanski glares at Dunaway. This is from Jesse Kornbluth reporting in Vanity Fair. I'm kind of taking this bit out of that. Okay. Polanski glares at Dunaway. You're just a chess piece on my board. If you work on my set, that's the way it has to be. Now, according to Bob Evans, Faye Dunaway replies, I won't work that way. Bob Evans says, Polanski smiles and says, fine, I don't want you to work. Poor Bob Evans, legendary Hollywood guy. Bless his heart. Bob Evans doesn't sound like she's the one who's difficult to work with here. Yeah, this is where the reputation is cemented, which I don't think is her fault. But somehow she buys into this persona because it gets trashier by the end. Okay, so Bob Evans, bless his poor heart. We'll keep Faye Dunaway off the set for like three weeks. And Roman Polanski just shoots around her until the last night of filming. And she comes back. They do not speak. There's a little bit of star power delay. She keeps everybody waiting for a really long time. But I'm going to leave you with this truly, truly magnificent gem to pack a pack a punch here. The ultimate on the set is that one day Roman Polanski would not let Faye Dunaway go to the bathroom. All she's got to do is pee. So Faye Dunaway will go and get a cup and pee in it and throw it at Roman Polanski. Good. Can't blame her for that one. (laughs) Good work. Okay. But alas, her work in Chinatown will get Faye Dunaway an Oscar nomination. She does not win. But it is photographer Terry O'Neill who is coming to take what is now one of the most legendary photos in Hollywood. Let me give you a little background on Terrence Patrick O'Neill. He is a Leo man, born July 30th, 1948. Terry O'Neill is born to Irish parents living in Essex. His Father is a foreman at the Ford plant. His mom is a homemaker. Terry doesn't really dig school. He wants to be a jazz drummer (laughs) and not really go to school. So at 14, he's out. But then he gets this idea and he thinks, man, if I can get a gig as a flight attendant, I can fly to New York and play my jazz there on layovers. (laughs) Okay. Well, being a flight attendant... This leaves Terry O'Neill in airports quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And he is, you know, he likes to take pictures. So this is where his career, like the freaking origin stories that people have. (laughs) This is where his career with taking pictures will begin. So a snapshot that he takes of the home secretary coming back from vacation gets notice on Fleet Street. And his career is born. They're like, holy cats, man, you take great pictures, you're young, you're hip. I was just hanging out in an airport because that's my job. (laughs) So Terry's going to marry actress Vera Day in 1963. And 1963 is the same year that Terry's, uh, you know, just taking casual snaps of the Beatles who are breaking it big. And then the Rolling Stones see those and they're like, hey, Terry, we want you to come take our picture. 
Wow. Okay. So you need to know that Terry O'Neill through the next decade takes everyone's picture. He's a legend by the time he meets Faye Dunaway, which is how he's called in to be the famous photographer to take this needed shot. So this brings Terry O'Neill to Hollywood to photograph Faye Dunaway for her nomination for Network. Okay. Okay. The Oscar awards happen. She does not win for Bonnie and Clyde. She will win for Network. So Terry O'Neill is asked about this, about one of your most well-known photographs is the picture of Faye Dunaway the morning after she won her Oscar. Where did the inspiration for that photo come from? And Terry O'Neill says, funny enough, I was photographing her on an assignment for People magazine at the time. They always did a piece on the girl they think is going to win. Anyway, they picked Faye Dunaway. And while we were doing the pictures, I said to her, I've been to the Oscars before. If you win, they always take the same pictures of you receiving the statue in the press room. I knew that wasn't the real story. The real story is the next day when they realize suddenly they're getting all these offers to do films and their value goes from $100,000 to $10 million and they're just sort of stunned. I wanted to capture that. Hmm. So I told her my idea, and she was sport enough to do it early in the morning at the Beverly Hills Hotel. She got up at 6 a.m., and we got that great picture. It's become one of the most Hollywood pictures of all time. Hmm. It's an enormous shot. It is an enormous photo. It is also the beginning of the love affair. (laughs) Terry will divorce his wife, Vera Day, in 1981, Hmm. after almost 28 years of marriage. Oh, God. Allowing Faye Dunaway and Terry O'Neill to marry in 1982. Now, for all of that, the men who dated Faye Dunaway wouldn't have given much of a shot to Terry O'Neill for good odds at happiness. There's a Los Angeles man about town who's not Warren Beatty, who tells Jesse Kornbluth she was very heavy luggage. Very few men could take her. Hmm. But Terry O'Neill's going to try. Again, all resources are on TrashyDivorces.com. There's a wonderful piece in Vanity Fair that I'm going to use some quotes from here. It takes Faye a little bit, but she will tell Jesse Kornbluth how she used to live episodically. I'd do a movie which took enormous energy. When I was working, there wasn't much time. And in between, the affairs and relationships were always more important than work. I was hyper, too energetic, too set on perfection. And then I went to England for the first really serious private time with my husband and child. It was a crucial period. I got much clearer about who I am. I think I've changed a lot. I'm much less driven than I used to be. Much less crazy, much more aware, much quieter. This is her kind of taking a break. Mm -hmm. Married, kids, settling down, understanding day-to-day life and not being quite so... Career obsessed. Right. I mean, she's she's mid-career now. It's not the happening 70s anymore. Well, and Cornbluth asks, did life just wear you down? And she grins, lays on a southern twang, and says, right down to the ground. I learned there may be a few more important things than working, and I learned to lighten up. All good lessons. Yeah. For sure. Absolutely. So Faye and Terry live and work in London. They have a child, but soon the marriage is hitting some skids. The rumor mill will say that the divorce is Terry's idea. Again, this is according to Vanity Fair. 
It followed a long struggle on his part to rescue her from a self-destructive wallow in fast lane ingredients. The parts with big salaries and limos and lots of push at Oscar time are going to stars 10 years her junior. And it won't be long before Jane and Diane and Goldie and in just a few years, even Marilyn Sigourney will have to confront the harsh reality that star parts in American movies go to the young. Just when an actress is the most womanly, most expert in her craft, she must make the transition from leading lady to character actress. No star willingly or gracefully accepts this truth. Dunaway, who spent her 30s as if she owned time, has found a solution that works for her. She ignores the subject entirely. (laughs) (laughs) So their marriage is unraveling and kind of for an unsurprising reason. Uh, Terry O'Neill comes to resent his self-appointed role as her handbag carrier. Mm. He invests a lot of time and energy in trying to save her career. Like, babe, let's, let's go do these things like let me let me Svengali you here mm-hmm, right that his own career begins to fall apart mm. so he's trying to be her manager in effect and it's it he ends up not managing his own okay kind of but you never want to invite the O'Neill Dunaways to dinner because at dinner parties he's likely to shout don't you know I'm the best fucking photographer there is and she's just as public Uh, Let's see, a friend recalls they'd fight as if they were the only people in the room when there were hundreds of people watching. More and more often, evenings will end with Terry being poured into the limo. Faye doesn't seem to mind. Friend still reports they usually didn't drink at the same time. The nights when Terry drank, she was incredibly patient with him. But it sounds like they're both kind of going through some things. Mm -hmm. Faye's picking terrible films. Supergirl ordeal by like not the Oscar not that Supergirl was a terrible film by any stretch of the imagination but she's not picking Oscar caliber films she's choosing Mm -hmm. wrong she turns down a lot of parts that made a lot of other actresses right at that time and he's like babe you need to get your career back and she's like babe I'm living in England having a lovely time with you and our kids so friends ask him over for dinner and they're like how long are you going to be in New York And they both answer at the same time. And he says two weeks. And she says, we're moving back for good. Oh, God. (laughs) So clearly some differences of opinions. So Anil begins asking his buddies, like, should I leave her? What's going to happen to her? That same season, Faye helps arrange O'Neill a surprise appearance as the subject of the British version of the TV show, This Is Your Life. They do a version in, in Britain. So on camera, Faye will speak about her husband's talents as a father. And then the party moves on to what was supposed to be a very celebratory dinner at Toto's, where Faye and Terry proceed to have a fight that within minutes they cleared the restaurant. That's rough. (laughs) So it is unsurprising that the couple splits in 1987 and divorces soon after. Terry O'Neill will marry once more in 2001 Passes away at the age of 81 in London in 2019. Wow. Extraordinary career. Mm-hmm. He really, phenomenal eye behind a camera. Faye Dunaway will not remarry. And goodness, that could be the end of our story. But I have some unrelated, not trashy divorce items per se. But y'all are going to be mad if I don't mention these. So let's go ahead and talk about it. Okay. 
I do feel bad for Faye Dunaway getting the bad rap on Chinatown for, oh, she's so difficult. However, it seems like Faye Dunaway kind of took that moniker and ran with it. (laughs) One of the most amazing bits of interviews. It's happened on Johnny Carson, Larry King, Gary Collins. Doesn't matter. Betty Davis will tell you. Betty Davis, when asked who the most difficult person in Hollywood is, without hesitation, without taking a breath, Faye Dunaway. Always. In 1988, I'll talk about the Johnny Carson one. Johnny's like, hey, who wouldn't you want to work with? (laughs) Betty Davis without missing a Dr. Dre beat. Mm -hmm. A million dollars Faye Dunaway. And anyone in this chair would tell you the exact same thing. Weird. So Johnny Carson, right, prods her a little. What is it about her? And Betty Davis legendary queen of complication. Right. It's like, she's totally impossible. We don't have time to go into all the reasons, but she's uncooperative. She's a very unprofessional and difficult woman. And I've had the reputation for that kind of thing. She keeps actors and crews waiting. You know, Johnny Carson is like, but you've been known to be difficult. And she's like, I never kept a crew waiting. Hmm. I never kept other actors waiting. I always knew my lines. I always showed up on time. Faye Dunaway is what I was not. She's very self-centered and difficult. And then Betty Davis, of course, is going to get in. It made me mad that I never got more praise for being more professional. Wow. (laughs) She'll talk about, she's like, 100 years ago, it was Miriam Hopkins. That was the most impossible, unprofessional actress in Hollywood. But now it is Faye Dunaway. She must know that's how we'll all feel. And this is the chef's kiss on it. I'll raise my glass never. Never to miss Faye Dunaway. She's the most incredibly inconsiderate woman I have ever worked with. They should charge her for the cost of the day. I'm gobsmacked that was said on Carson. That 1988 on wow. Carson. And then it's such a hit on Carson. Betty Davis is booked for like Larry King, like nine other shows. So she kind of goes through Come the Come talk smack about Faye Dunaway with me. Well, apparently there was a time... When Betty and Faye were starring in a play together and Faye kept everyone waiting. Right. Like it was supposed to start at whatever. They had box lunches brought in for the audience and the audience is done with their lunch and Faye hasn't appeared on screen. So Betty Davis, consummate professionals, like, shit, this crowd's getting rowdy. So Betty Davis just goes on stage and talks to him for 20 minutes, sings a song or two. Just like, come on, Faye, get your shit together. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently, don't piss Betty Davis off in 1966 because yeah. she'll come back for you two decades later. I got two more little bits here because I, again, I think she has adopted this moniker of, of difficult. So in the 1990s, Faye Dunaway is touring as Maria Callas in Masterclass. And during this time, she's late a lot. She'll call down to the hotel staff so the bellhops can rearrange her furniture in the middle of the night in her hotel room because the flow isn't right. Uh, She pitches a fit when they send her a white limousine and not a black limousine. Okay, this is where previous Trashy Divorces alum Andrew Lloyd Webber gets involved. Hmm. Okay. So then there's another time that Faye Dunaway is about to appear in Sunset Boulevard. Andrew Lloyd Webber. Mm -hmm. Nora Medesmond, right? Gloria Swanson. We've died. Spiderwebs. But she gets fired. And so she turns around in L.A. Superior Court to sue Andrew Lloyd Webber. He fires her, he says, because she can't sing well enough. He'll hire Glenn Close to replace Faye Dunaway as Norma Desmond. 
it shuts the whole thing down. There was a big fat lawsuit. She's mad about it. He's mad about it. We all remember her 2017 Best Picture Oscar mix-up with Warren Beatty when they gave the name to the wrong movie that won. Yeah. Okay. But 2019, it gets worse. Here it is. La Scandale. Faye Dunaway, in 2019, three years ago, is fired from a Broadway-bound play called Tea at Five. It is Faye Dunaway's first time on Broadway in 37 years. Faye is playing Catherine Hepburn. And according to accounts by crew and staff, mm-hmm. Faye Dunaway created a hostile and dangerous environment backstage. Oh, God. Where cast members feared for their safety. What was going on? Well, the July 10th performance was canceled moments before curtain because there was an altercation backstage where Faye Dunaway slaps crew members and throws things at other crew members who were trying to put on her wig. Wow. It wasn't just physical. There were some verbal abuses as well. Faye Dunaway will take off to Europe after this. Cannot be reached for comment. But this play was set in Boston. It was going to launch in Boston, go to Broadway. This was going to be her big return after the failure of Sunset Boulevard all those years ago. But she's late to rehearsals and no one is allowed to look at her in rehearsals. So she's one of those. Okay. One of those. Even with the script in her hand for six months to prepare, she doesn't know her lines. Some sources say 98% of her script is read to her through an earpiece. Hmm. There were also some unusual voicemails left at night for the creative team. She really is against the color white. Uh, <laughs> you can't have anything white around her. Uh, no one in the, if I'm acting, no one in the theater should be able to move while I'm acting. No one's allowed to wear white. Also, she's losing a lot of weight and the producers are kind of concerned. So they reach out to Actors' Equity to find out what is the ethicality of putting someone on stage? What is our liability? Because this is kind of going off the rails. It gets worse. Faye commands the crew to get on their hands and knees and scrub the floor of her dressing room. While doing so, she's throwing mirrors, combs, and hairpins. Yikes. Also, the wig that she's wearing because (laughs) she wants to play Hepburn younger than she was. The play's set in 1983 with Catherine Hepburn recovering from a car accident, so she would have been 76. Right. So her wig would have gray hair. Right. But Faye's just plucking out those gray hairs because she wants Catherine Hepburn to be played like she's 40. I don't know. Those are the trashy divorces and... uh, (laughs) Trashy career choices. Trashy career choices of Faye Dunaway. I'm going to pin a little bit of this one on Roman Polanski. Sure. Because, come on. I don't know really how to quantify this one. I'm going to go with 18 trash cans, the number of award nominations for Faye Dunaway in her career. Peter Wolf seems like the nicest guy that's ever existed. And, you know, Terry O'Neill, you took really good pictures. But Faye Dunaway, how crap do you have to be to have Betty Davis be like, you were my mortal enemy? Oh, my God. I <laughs> I guess I just missed accounts of the 2019 it's bad thing. That, yeah. that is unbelievable. Well, like every time she tries to come into her own. I mean, I get it. She wants to understand her part and be that actress and live in the motivation. And I understand the dedication to your craft, man. But don't be an asshole. Play nice with others. 
Faye Dunaway. Wow, that was... That was a ride. That was a ride. Thank you. You are welcome. That is going to wrap Trashy Divorces for the week. Don't forget, this week on Patreon, holy cats, we got all the regular stuff. Dumpster Dives, Spiderwebs, Nightcap Chat, in addition, Creativity Club this week, as well as our Othello, Trashy Shakespeare, next week. Mm-hmm. You can always get some free episodes pulled out of the Patreon paywall. Yeah, check out uh, bit.ly slash trash candy. Just plug that into a browser and go to the liberated from the paywall archive. And it is worth a mention. My love affair podcast, Done and Done, does return on Valentine's Day for a whole brand new season of Notorious. So if you're into that, check that out. Also, Love Letters 2 this week. We're in our month of muses and makers. Mm-hmm. Y'all may be interested as Trashy Divorces listeners in some of these. Yeah. We did an episode about Oleg Cassini and Jacqueline Kennedy, Edith Wharton and her dollar princesses, Patty Boyd and Eric Clapton. Oh, gosh, Boris Pasternak and his love, Olga, who inspired Dr. Zhivago. Mm-hmm. Really good stories over there on Love Letters 2. I think that's all the business. Okay. Holy cat, y'all. Thanks so much for listening. And your amazing emails and kind reviews and just generally being the very best podcast audience that has ever existed. We adore you. We do. We do. Enjoy the Super Bowl, I guess. Oh, yeah. I hope your sporting team sports sure. is sure. well. We don't have any spoilers for how it goes to share with you. So No, we're recording this the day before. <laughs> uh, go sports teams. <laughs> <laughs> Until we meet again, darlings. Clean hands. Trashy hearts. Have a tremendously wonderful week. Bye, y'all. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at TrashyDivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all. <laughs>